What do we do with terrorists after we put them behind bars? Hi, this is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Russell, Ontario, Canada. Here is Canadian Intelligence Day. When it comes to terrorism, there are really two types of outcomes I would I would submit to you. One is where the terrorists die in the attack, either through a suicide bombing or they're killed by law enforcement or the military. And the other is where the terrorists survive. In the latter case, they are generally charged with some offense under the criminal code, be it terrorism, be it murder, whatever. They're brought to trial and, if we're fortunate, they are found guilty by a jury or by a judge and they're usually given long prison sentences. Again, depending on the country. Then it becomes an interesting issue. What do we do with them then? Do we try to rehabilitate them? Do we try to de-radicalize them? Whatever that's supposed to mean. And at the end of the day, are they ever actually ready to rejoin society? And what is their risk to society? To talk about these matters, I'm bringing in an old friend of mine for the second time um, from Norway, Atle Misui. He's an a-, a counterterrorism analyst in Norway, and we're going to talk about a particular case. So Atle, thank you for rejoining me on the podcast. Uh, welcome, and uh, I'm very pleased. Thank you for inviting me. The case I want to talk about, Atle, is, of course, uh, Anders Breivik. Now, um, just to remind my listeners, uh, Anders Breivik did something catastrophic from a Norwegian perspective. On the 22nd of July, 2011, it's hard to believe it's been 10 and a half years since that happened. Can you remind my listeners what happened on that fateful day in Norway? Yes, um, he uh, he set off uh, a bomb in the in the in the uh, the, the center of Oslo, where the the government has its uh, center. Um, and where there are some high buildings, and he set off a bomb, uh, which was uh, 950 kilo, in a in a white van, and then he drove to an island, uh, one hour's drive from Oslo, where he attacked a summer camp um, with uh, heavy um, weapons, automatic weapons. Uh, a summer camp for um, for the the Labour Party youth, and he killed altogether seventy seven people. Eight were killed in the uh, in the governmental quarters, and uh, and sixty nine were were killed in Utøya. And he killed um, in a in in a really cold blooded way where he had uh, psyched himself up to to kill like it was in a video game and he killed uh, uh, youth down to even down to 14 years old now this is obviously a a, a tremendous event in norwegian history I, I can't i can't think of anything else even remotely that this catastrophic for norwegian society now now Breivik himself he left a, a huge manifesto. I believe it was fifteen hundred pages in length. He saw himself as a what is a sort of a, a knight's templar. Uh, I mean, how would you describe Breivik as a terrorist? What, what category would you put him under? Yes, it's it's really difficult to to place him uh, under a, a category, but um, he 
he saw himself as uh, as a type of uh, savior and um, and a rebel, you could say, uh, on the on the right wing side, and um, and he also mixed in different ideologies. So it wasn't a pure neo-Nazi approach because he killed white uh, youth. Um, so he mixed some some ideologies together, and his uh, he he was inspired by Al Qaeda, for example, the way the way he did it, and um, it was uh, in many ways. Uh, when I compared him, I the closest I got was to to Ted Kaczynski. Oh, okay. Yes, because um, uh, because he he had um, the the idea of a society that needed to be differently, uh, or that he needed to save, and he had a long manifesto that, uh, as you already have have mentioned, he was uh, he was living for himself on a on a farm while he was making the huge bomb. And he had uh, the idea to hack to to attack the the the, the whole of uh, or a, a large well the highest levels of uh, of of, of uh, society in Norway. He even had plans to 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 uh, to set off a bomb uh, on in the royal palace. That was changed that plan, but. It was a uh, he. He was uh, over average, um, smart or at least street smart, and he came from a very resourceful family. And when I look at his background, um, being uh, uh, being uh, um, separated from his his parents at a very young age, I I, I saw uh, a lot of similarities to to Ted Kaczynski. Right. So just a reminder to my listeners who aren't as familiar with with Ted Kaczynski, he was the Unabomber in the United States who carried out a campaign over years, I believe, for, before he was finally caught. Now, Breivik has been, you know, I guess in this manifesto that we've referred to, he stated his opposition to Islam. He blamed feminism for a European mm. cultural suicide, as he mm. called it, mm. wanted the deportation of all Muslims from Europe, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you know, a year after the attack, Atla, he, he was actually convicted of, of mass murder, causing a fatal explosion and terrorism, and was given a 21-year sentence in prison, which I understand is the maximum under Norwegian law. What was the reaction in Norway at the time, if you can recall a decade ago, to the decision by the court to basically sentence him to a long sentence, although after 10 years that there would be there would be a reassessment. And we'll get to that in a second. But what was the reaction in society to the trial of Anders Breivik? It's it was very interesting to 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 see. And uh, there, in in cases such as this, uh, it is almost impossible that it doesn't become uh, political in one or the other way. And um, uh, as as uh, it was clear, he had attacked them. The Labour Party, I and and had attacked uh, the, the core of of Norway, 
um, there was a huge outcry and and obviously a call a call for revenge um, in a sort of way where he should be sentenced to to the heaviest penalty uh, that was. And, um, I think that was uh, a type of demand from from the people and also from the the victims' families and uh, not least from uh, from the from the Labour Party that had been so so much um, affected. Now, some of us in North America, uh, fairly or unfairly, would say that in Scandinavia, so Norway and Sweden and Finland and Denmark, that the prison system is rather inadequate in that what I've read and I've seen other reports that there is much more emphasis, if I can use that term, placed on rehabilitation and helping the prisoner as opposed to punishment. Is that a fair criticism in your regard about Scandinavian, the penitentiary system in your country? Well, we, we believe it's a really good system. And uh, so, so, uh, so we, um, we, we, are, we are proud of having that type of um, justice. Uh, justice system and um, uh, and uh, prison system, and um, um, even if even if uh, he uh, the, the the we have the idea of of rehabilitating, um, they uh, Breivik has been sentenced to, uh, to uh, the the sentence he has received has um, has been. Um, with a preventative detention, so he will stay there for um, unlimited time if he is judged as a threat to society. As long as he is, as as uh, as long as he evaluated as a threat to society, he will not be released. Okay, so uh, as I mentioned, after ten years in the Norwegian judicial system, he is. Uh, eligible for a a parole hearing. So a couple of weeks ago, he in fact had that parole hearing, and I don't think it went very well at first. Can you describe what Breivik was like when he entered his parole hearing three or four weeks ago? It it was uh, very strange to see him, and uh, it was ten years since uh, I had really seen him uh, in almost live. It was uh, a video that different videos that I watched, but he, <clears throat> he was groomed like he was the last time during the, the first court. He, he looked smart um, with a suit and um, combed hair, all that. Uh, but in addition, he had small notes uh, stuck to his, uh, or pinned to his suit and uh, stuck on his uh, his uh, case, uh, his um, computer or laptop case, <laughs> where it's where it said something about uh, or specific. It said that uh, stop the genocide of of the white people. Of the so um, uh, it was. It was a peculiar view to see him in in the trial because he he knew he was on a stage almost and he held up the the the, the briefcase uh, with a note on and uh, it was it was 
very strange to see because the two things didn't work very well together. <laughs> very nice, sharply dressed and, and, and putting up these type of small notes. In, in the end, his, his parole here, his parole was denied. I want to read something that this is from a Guardian article a few days ago, Atle. And he, you know, not only did he say the things you had, but it, it was reported that he actually flashed a Nazi salute when he entered the courtroom. Mm. And then he said, um, but today I strongly disassociate myself from violence and terror. I hereby give you my word of honor. This is behind me forever. And he said that if, in fact, he were granted parole, he offered to live in the Arctic or a non-Western country. Now, I'm going to go on a limb here. And I'm, I'm not familiar with the Norwegian justice system, but for somebody who's been convicted and given a 21-year sentence for mass murder and terrorism, inspired by, and as you said, it's it's, a, it's difficult to pin Breivik down, but we can say there were some neo-Nazi elements to what he did, some white supremacist elements. Hmm. Walking into a courtroom and giving a Nazi salute is probably not going to get the court on your side. Would you agree with me? <laughs> I totally agree. It was it, it, it was ridiculous in that sense, and and that's that's one of the reasons when I look at that and I, I heard what he said, it it just uh, struck me that he has still got some of the same things that he he had and and. Uh, uh, some some people will define that as out of contact with reality, because it was he was bound to lose the case when he was uh, uh, appearing like that, and also he didn't take any any guilt. Um, he did not take any fault for the twenty second of July, the attack. He said it was it was due to him being radicalized and being brainwashed uh, by blood and honor. So they, they were mostly uh, responsible for that, not him. I'm going to guess that in the Norwegian judicial system, that as, uh, uh, assuming or admitting guilt to your crimes is a pretty important factor in the consideration of rehabilitation and parole. Would that be a fair assessment? Absolutely, uh, absolutely, it, it is. And and when he uh, didn't admit any any uh, guilt, it was. Uh, as I see it, it was uh, almost it was a, a closed case because even if he said that, and and that was interesting, he said that he had gone, he had left violence, he had left the violent type of uh, of right wing extremism, and he had gone on to the non violent part, which was uh, the the Nordic resistance movement, right. Uh, which he also uh, used as a, a witness, one of the leaders from from that uh, organization. Uh, so yes, he, um, he 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 tried that as well, and he okay. found and he was bound to fail. And he did, and 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 like I said, that the parole was denied. Not surprisingly, I can imagine if the court had granted any kind of leniency, there would have been riots in Oslo yeah. uh, after what he did. Yeah. You mentioned about maybe losing touch with reality, Adler. And, 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 you know, he did legally change his name to Fjortolf Hansen in 2017. You and I, in our previous podcast, talked about the whole issue of mental health when it comes to terrorism and extremism. Yeah. Hmm. Do you think that there are legitimate concerns about uh, Mr. Breivik's or Mr. Hansen's uh, mental state at this point? Yes, I think so. Um, it is, but it is, it is really complicated because... 
I I think that we can see elements of uh, or examples of delusions that he had uh, right after the 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 attack on the 22nd of July, where he claimed that um, yeah also that you can read in the in the manifesto. And he claimed that the, the government sh- should be changed and the king should step down uh, and um, and he should take over the Norwegian defense. So when you when you put all of those things together, he also believed he would be waterboarded or, and his family would be waterboarded. When you put all those type of things together, then it is it is uh, I think it's a strong reason to believe that he was out of touch with uh, reality. And some would call that a bubble. Some would call it being uh, uh, psychotic. And and some would say that this is delusions. And I'm not a doctor, so I, I can't say that. I cannot, I'm not a psychiatrist. But I can say, compared to other terrorists and what I know about delusions, that seemed to be delusions that he, that he had. And that he was out of touch with reality, and that's also what we can see now some signs of. Where do we go from here, Atla? He, his parole hearing has been denied. He may, in fact, spend the next eleven years or so in a Norwegian prison. Do you again? And I understand, and I, I, I take you know what you've just said. You're not a psychiatrist. You're not a mental health specialist. Mm. What can the system do with someone like that moving forward? Is there? any hope that something might get through to him? I mean, my understanding of your judicial system is that eventually he will, in fact, be released, much like Canadian justice, by the way. Most people that are convicted of the most heinous of crimes, with very, very few exceptions, do eventually see the light of day. Where does the prison system go next with Mr. Breivik? I think it's it's really difficult because uh, he, he will get, every year he has the right to to have a, a parole hearing uh, a court case um, and some uh, some uh, lawyers are are um, or, or uh, judicial experts are trying to to stop that but probably he will he will get it very regularly um at those type type of uh, parole hearings and <laughs> since he has not changed almost anything up to now and um, he's not re- receiving medication. Uh, you, you also, that that is also a part of the, the the picture. So, as it is now, there there are very um, low expectations that he will totally change. And as long as people are living in the Norwegian society that remember so well what he did. Those two things added, I, I do not think that he will be released. Okay, here's here's a very unfair question for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to predict the future in 2031 uh, or 2032 when his sentence is finally completed. Do you think at that point, no, no, no an awful lot can happen in 10 years. I understand that. Mm. But do you think that that there's a good chance that if it does appear that the law will have seen the... Um, it will have seen us run its course and Mr. Breivik will, in fact, be pending release in a decade's time. There will be changes to Norwegian law so that in cases like this of mass murder, that exceptions can be made to the normal rule of releasing people back into Norwegian society? Well, 
Breivik will in case be uh, a, a test case and um, and they are trying to think about how they could do it to to just um, to, to, to test if he could uh, manage to be part of some type of, of gathering on the outside if he has enough uh, if he is uh, guarded um, enough um, so they want to take small tests perhaps and and uh, and see how it goes but it there is such a high responsibility with even trying to 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 uh, leave him outside in in the free world um the possibility is there that he could escape and it would be it would be uh, tragic if 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 that happened and he was to to set off an, another bomb and he cannot be trusted and that that's a main main uh, point here he has been lying so much that that uh, everyone knows in the judicial system he cannot be trusted and that is a huge problem so making him uh, a case is uh, a test case is also problematic because he is he is really one of a kind mm-hmm. very, very unique character in, in norwegian in recent norwegian history not to mention of course that the survivors and the families of the, of the victims, especially the young people of the party who were slaughtered like sheep, uh, would be up in arms, I imagine, if at some point uh, yes. Mr. Breivik is released. Yes, for sure. And now they have high uh, political positions. And so <laughs> the, the chances are very slim uh, also due to that. Well, I guess we're going to have to wait and see. This is a unique case, as we said, in in Norwegian judicial history. Listen, Atle, thank you very much for walking us through what the, uh, I guess, what the stakes are in this case. It is a it is a a terrible example of slaughter uh, in 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 your country, the worst your country's ever seen. And 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 thank you for taking the time to help us understand what the ramifications of this case are. A pleasure, Phil, as as always. That was my conversation with Athena Masoy in, in Norway about the Anders Breivik case. What do you think about what should be done with terrorist prisoners? Should they be rehabilitated? What does rehabilitation even mean in these cases? Love to hear your feedback. You can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisaves. You can also find me on LinkedIn and on, and on Facebook. If you like this content and want more, go to the website, borealisthreatenrisk.com. Hit the subscribe button. Get free daily digests of all the information, blogs, and podcasts as well as a link to my rapidly diminishing store of my new book, The Peaceable Kingdom, History of Terrorism in Canada from Confederation to the Present, available on the website and on Amazon Kindle. Love to hear your feedback on this and other podcast. I'll talk to you again soon. Until then, stay safe. Stay safe.